Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses, while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you're acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to The Last Symptom. I'm Brian Barnett, the creator and host of the show. Last week was the first week I've skipped doing the podcast in over a year. So I was curious to see if I had forgotten how to open this show. I worried I might accidentally say Happy Tuesday or any number of strange things. But apparently, doing this show is just like riding a bike. So Happy Thursday. I'm so glad to have you folks join me or rejoin me today. Before we get into the meat and taters of today's show, let me direct you over to thelastsymptom.com. That's my website full of free resources, all on the subject of authentic understanding and authentic recovery from emotional disorders, and specifically borderline personality disorder. That's something I did, you know. I once had borderline personality disorder as ingrained as anybody ever has, and I eliminated it and I become emotionally healthy in an authentic way. So maybe you have a hard time believing this, and that's fine, but you owe it to yourself to explore my work honestly. I host a Facebook education group, and if you're interested in joining us there, you can find links for it over at thelastsymptom.com, or you can just search Brian Barnett, colon, The Last Symptom within Facebook. There are two mandatory questions that I ask people to answer before I permit them to join. So be sure to do that. They're not unreasonably intrusive questions, so no worries there. But the reason why I bring up the Facebook education group is that recently somebody who was interested in joining made the comment, I'm interested in in Barnett's work because he talks about a cure. I believe he found a way to manage symptoms, but I don't believe in a cure. Again, that's fine. I understand if it's hard to believe at first. After all, the overwhelming message in the information bombarding you on this subject is the opposite, right? That there is no cure. But let me say this. Just because you and nobody you know has ever learned to whistle or swim or ride a bike or juggle, this does not make those things impossible, okay? So pitch this type of defeatist, silly thinking away. Reject it, because it's, it's a logical fallacy. And choose to approach my work genuinely with the right mindset. I'm not asking for your blind faith. You see, in time, you'll get explanations for all your doubts that are going to convince you that I really did have the disorder and that I now really don't have it. But in the meantime, it's up to you to approach my work with the proper attitude that's going to complement and not obstruct the benefits waiting for you. Back to thelastsymptom.com. I'm able to do the work that I do only because 
people support the work financially. They value the time I spend creating these free resources for those who can benefit from them. Like the show you're listening to now, which I've been churning out weekly for going on two years. The articles that I spend many hours writing and making available at thelastsymptom.com and definitely the Last Symptom Facebook Education Group, which is a tremendous, probably undervalued resource and that I actively manage. So if you're interested in being a part of the success of The Last Symptom and you'd like to contribute to the good that it's doing, I welcome you to leave a donation, as great or as small as is within your means, that won't negatively affect your life while you're visiting thelastsymptom.com. It's a very simple process and can be taken care of securely under the Donate Sponsor tab over there at thelastsymptom.com. Also, it's worth mentioning that I offer my time for one-on-one phone conversations. And if that's something that you think you could benefit from, this also can be scheduled and paid for right from thelastsymptom.com. Another option is to sponsor calls for, for other people with me. All these things go a long way in allowing me to continue focusing on the last symptom work. And with all that said, enough about that. Let's get into today's topics, plural, because there's more than one. Because I missed last week, I might have a few more things that I that I want to cram in here today. So the first class of the last symptom fundamentals course just wrapped up this past Friday. The first class was held for four hours every evening for two weeks via Zoom video conferencing. We did it 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. every night except for weekends, and that's New York time. The purpose was not to cure people with borderline personality disorder in two weeks. Rather, the objective was to help participants lay down a solid foundation of real understanding and insight about every aspect of the disorder, as well as other related aspects of emotional unhealth. So the people who participated in that, they can now continue to build upon the things they've learned and all these light bulb moments they experienced, not just for the next couple weeks, but for years to come. And not only in their efforts to authentically rid themselves of borderline personality disorder, but also to continue living better ever after. You know, the truth is I still refer back to these fundamentals of emotional health all the time myself in all sorts of situations. They guide my life daily. They come very natural to me. But the more complex the situation is, sometimes I will refer back to the fundamentals and say, all right, what's the best way to handle this? The class itself was an overwhelming success. Uh, If you'll remember, it's something that I had been trying to develop and start offering since early summer of last year in 2019. You might remember when I began talking about the idea on this podcast all that time ago. So it's a little surreal for me that that the first class has now come and gone. Since the support for this first class was successful, I have decided to offer it a few more times this year. The next classes will be offered at times that are ideal for folks in a variety of time zones and parts of the world. Uh, The U.S. West Coast, uh, or California specifically, is probably where my focus will turn next. And then the U.K. and then Australia and maybe New Zealand. And we'll just keep going like that as long as the support is there. Another plan I have in the works is to pre-record the entire Fundamentals class 
and offer it online in a format that will allow those who are interested to take the course at whatever hours are most convenient for them, at any time, on any day. The drawback to this is that those who choose to go this route will not have the benefit of interacting with fellow class participants, and they also won't be able to stop me and ask questions and get clarifications on things. You know, one of the truly great benefits of the live course is that there were a variety of different personality types dealing with a variety of different personal situations, and the class members were able to listen to each other and bounce off each other. So that was nice. And now that that course has ended, all of those participants now go forward with these new friendships and all of this new support from these other participants. So I do think that the live course will always be superior to the pre-recorded course, but that's not to say that the pre-recorded course won't be beneficial for those who simply won't set aside two weeks worth of evenings for whatever reason. So you can look forward to that. Would you like to hear some of the things that uh, the participants of that class had to say? This is what this person said. I was on the fence about participating in the first last symptom course. I was worried about how much benefit I'd get out of it because I've learned so much from Brian and made such drastic progress already. I wanted to see some of the feedback first before I made my decision. However, I talked myself into it and found that you do not have to be completely new to Brian's work to benefit greatly. If I had to do it over again, I would not hesitate. I've experienced confirmation of some things that I'm doing right, new perspectives on things that I thought I already knew, better understanding of things I had questions on, completely new insights, the benefits of hearing from others who share similar and different struggles, and not just Brian, even though he's great. One thing I've really taken for granted is the subtlety of everything we're dealing with. Last week, I realized that a subtle way I word things might have been holding me back by encouraging the subconscious thought that borderline personality disorder is part of me, something that I can't change. So this week, I've been making a conscious effort to word things more carefully. For example, I'm not as bad as I used to be. Well, actually, I'm not bad. I was never bad. The symptoms of my disorder were bad or worse. So that's just a little sample from what that person had to say. Here's another one. Whoa, what an enormous amount of work and care Brian Barnett put into this. Tonight is the last night of the two-week course. I've learned so much from this class. Even though I mistakenly thought I'd absorbed everything Brian had to offer from listening to his podcast. The format was presented in a PowerPoint format with each slide full of new insights and visuals, so many in fact, that I ended up taking screenshots of over 400 slides full of information for later reference. We had nine students. As we shared the screen and listened to Brian, we also interacted with each other. Every day we checked in, which gave us each the opportunity to see if we understood correctly the principles of the presentation the previous day. Let me see. Okay, here's another one. I participated in the Last Symptom Fundamentals live and online course over the last two weeks. We covered a lot of information in such a short period of time, but the information was very useful and will have a great impact on my life moving forward. I learned that people are like the weather and we can't change it, and we can only act accordingly. I also gained a better understanding about personal boundaries and how you're only responsible for yourself. This course was only a start 
and only a guide to get us started in the right direction, and I feel like Brian Barnett did an excellent job at doing that for me. Thanks, Brian, and fellow class members for the past two weeks. So there's just a sample of what people coming out of that class thought about it, and uh, I'm sure that they would encourage you to take advantage of future opportunities for that class. Like I say, there might be three or four more opportunities this year. Um, it's exhausting <laughs> for me. I mean, I'm sure that the participants also were, were exhausted, but uh, it took me days after that. those two weeks were up for me to completely recover. It just it drained me. Uh, like I say, it's uh, 40 hours you know, over the course of two weeks. That's a big commitment, and four hours every night. And there were a couple of nights where I told the class members that I'd be willing to stick around for an hour after the class ended, and we ended up staying around for two, two and a half, three hours on, on a couple of occasions. So I think that if I had never said goodnight, that we would have just kept talking until the early morning. And we had a nice uh, a nice mixed group. You know, we had not just people here from the United States. We had a couple of participants from the West Coast. We had a participant from the UK. That was really tough for her because by the time we finished, you know, it'd be 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning for her. Uh, we had a, a, partic- a participant from uh, Canada. So it was a, it was a really nice mix of people. And that's exactly what I was really, really hoping for. I'm, it, it turned out better than I could have ever dreamed. And, you know, the Zoom video conferencing, I thought it would have been inferior to actually being in a room with people physically. It really wasn't. It, it felt like I physically spent two weeks with everybody in one room. It worked that well and seamlessly. Uh, so just a beautiful experience. And I can't uh, recommend it enough. Now... Today's topic is motives. This is something I want to talk about for those who need to hear it. This isn't going to apply to everybody who's trying to recover from borderline personality disorder. But for those that it does apply to, it's imperative to have this conversation about motives. You know, maybe maybe the reason you listen to this show is because you're trying not to lose something. Or maybe you're doing it the the behest of somebody who cares about you. Uh, maybe you're doing it because your life is falling apart and you're ju- you just want to get back your old life. You just want things to go back the way that they were. So let's talk about motives, about being honest with ourselves about our motives and why it matters. The forces required to tap into the sort of motivation needed to break free from extremely subtle yet powerfully convincing false perspectives, which is the foundation of borderline personality disorder and and emotional disorders in general. The forces required to break free from this cannot be overstated. It really is the number one greatest obstacle to authentic recovery. You yourself are your first and greatest barrier to authentic recovery. Recovery. This is starting to become clear why analyzing our true motives is so important then. I myself often sit in awe and gratitude, remembering the unlikelihood of my own escape from those unhealthy, distorted patterns of thinking. 
but it's going to go down as one of my life's greatest, proudest, and most unlikely accomplishments. And yet, as proud as I am of this accomplishment, it's a pride tempered with great humility and gratitude, because I recognize that, in my case, many other people and events conspired against me to set the stage for my success. It's a little like being in the right place at the right time to rescue somebody from an oncoming train, for example, and then being labeled a hero, when you wouldn't have even been there except that you got an anonymous phone call an hour earlier saying, hey, be at this exact spot at this exact time. So you show up and you're just there at the right time and you you rescue the person and suddenly everybody is impressed with you. You know, for the first two years, my recovery, and I have that in air quotes, was artificial. I believe my intentions were sincere, but they weren't. I misunderstood the true nature of what I was promising others that I was trying to accomplish. I thought I was trying to change Brian Barnett, but that's not what I was trying to do at all. The real objective of the work was for me, for me to identify some of my perspectives my perspectives that were off and fix those. Because I believed I was being asked to do something impossible, in other words, become a different person or change who I am rather than just fix some of my perspectives that was resulting in all of these uh, unhealthy behaviors and attitudes and stuff, this naturally made it impossible for me to tap into genuine motivation, which is the only type of motivation that matters for true recovery. You see, my real motives were to convince others of my progress, to appease others, to prevent a divorce, to keep my life together, to end the inconvenient disruptions to my way of living and my way of thinking. That was my real motive, which at the time, again, I did not realize. I wouldn't realize this until later. When we talk about genuine motivation being the only type that matters for authentic recovery because it's the only type that works, what are we talking about? Well, put very simply, we're talking about doing something for the primary reason that you yourself want it, regardless of any and all external factors. By the way, this applies not just to recovery from an emotional disorder or borderline personality disorder. What we're talking about today applies to recovery from anything If you're an alcoholic and you're trying to get over alcoholism, this applies to you. If you're a drug addict, you're trying to free yourself from the enslavement to drugs, this conversation today applies to you. This applies to any type of recovery work. I mean, it applies basically to anything that you're going to do, that you're going to try to do for real. Now, think um, for a moment about doing something for the primary reason that you just simply want to do it, that you want to do it. Try to tap into the feeling of that type of motivation. Where does it come from? Where is it born? What's it feel like? What are examples of other aspects in your life when you've experienced this type of motivation? The type of motivation that's completely independent of any outside influence, born entirely from within yourself for what you simply are driven to do because you, you want it. 
regardless of what any other person on earth might think or not think, want or not want. Ask yourself this honestly. If my life went back to the way it was before I was compelled down this this path, if the man or the woman I'm trying not to lose was suddenly okay with things the way they are, or if I suddenly got my way, would my interest in fixing myself fade away? This is probably the key statement from this entire show today. And if you got a, a pencil or something, you want to write this down, I think that's a, a swell idea. Here it goes. Whatever you could get, which would satisfy you enough to quit this work, that thing is the true indisputable source of your motivation for trying at all. Let's say it again. Whatever you could get, which would satisfy you enough to quit this work, that thing is the true indisputable source of your motivation for trying at all. Only you can examine yourself honestly to identify if your true motivation is some external thing, and if it is, to then work to develop genuine motivation, which comes from within, not from without. It comes from within, and it's independent from anything external. If you examine yourself honestly and you discover that the only thing you can imagine getting, which would satisfy you enough to stop your efforts to be better emotionally, is to be rid of your disorder and to be enjoying true emotional health, then your motivation is sincere. It's genuine, and it's the sort needed for this work. Let me ask you this question. Is the craving, whether it be a conscious, subconscious, or unconscious, Is the craving to convince others of your progress and recovery an external motivation, or is it a genuine, genuine motivation? It's an external motivation, isn't it? It's a fake motivation. You see, your real purpose in that case is for others to know, notice, recognize, believe, think, or accept. Therefore, that type of motivation is worthless. It's powerless. It does not in any way bring about authentic recovery. You're wasting your time. What I'm not saying is that it's wrong to hope that as you make real progress that others notice. Nothing wrong with that. What I am saying is that their noticing cannot be your primary motivation for trying in the first place. If you had a serious physical illness, surely your motives for wanting to get healthy would not be dependent on other people or things, would it? So absolutely nothing less than this same sort of motivation will help you in your efforts toward emotional health and recovery. Do you see how trying, and I say that with air quotes, do you see how trying, air quotes, to recover with things like saving a relationship, satisfying another person, or preventing certain losses as your true primary motivation is not trying 
at all? See, you're not trying to recover. What you're trying to do is make somebody believe you're trying to recover. You're not genuinely trying to make progress and experience true breakthroughs. No, what you're trying to do is make somebody believe you're making progress and experiencing true breakthroughs. The only motivation that will work is genuine motivation. And that means that your true primary motivation has to be that you just seriously don't want to be an unhealthy person anymore. You don't want to be that. You want to do the work to be healthy because you want to be healthy. That's it. That's all. You want it no matter what the circumstances of your life are or what anybody else thinks or who's living with you or who's not living with you or if your wife's there or if she's not there or your husband. You want it no matter what because, because you want it. Now, is there any reason why a person who's currently being motivated by external things, that is fake motivation, can't change his or her motivation to something sincere and genuine? No, I wouldn't even be having this conversation if that were the case. There, there wouldn't be any point in me having a conversation about this if that were the case. So, as human beings, one extremely powerful option we have available to us at all times is the capability or the capacity to truly motivate ourselves. You think about men going to the moon or the Wright brothers flying a brand new airplane that had never been done before. Think about the Erie Canal. What a miracle the Erie Canal is, the time that that was made and the work that it took and the, the engineering that it took. How about uh, the Red Sox? Winning the, winning the World Series in 2018. You think they managed that just because the coach wanted it? No, they managed that because they dug down deep and they motivated themselves. They themselves wanted it as much or more than the coach. On July 26, 2013, I gave a guy named Matt and his pals a short ride from a small backpack and supply store in Salisbury, Connecticut, to a trailhead. He had through hiked the Appalachian Trail all the way from Georgia. And uh, later I saw a picture of him, I still have the picture, of him having completed the entire 2,500 miles of the Appalachian Trail on foot. And the picture is him at the top of Mount Katahdin in Maine, having finished that remarkable feat. Have you heard the expression, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? The answer is practice, practice, practice. But what is the only type of motivation that will fuel the endurance and continued passion for this practice, practice, practice? Genuine motivation, the only sort of motivation that matters for purposes of recovery, that's what. And this comes from personal desire. I'll give you an example. My daughter, Eloise, four years old, when she was three, she'd see me snapping my fingers to music. And she wanted to do that so bad, but she just couldn't make her little fingers do it. In fact, she was using her pointer finger and her thumb. And I kept trying to correct her. No, honey, it's the, you got to use the middle finger and your thumb. That's how I do it. And I kept showing her, kept showing her. 
And she'd get frustrated and she'd come back to me. I can't do it. I can't do it. I said, well, I can promise you this. If you want it bad enough, and if you keep trying, you will get it. Guess what? Now she walks around snapping her fingers like she's a professional finger snapper. Man, I couldn't be more proud. I'm so proud of her for not giving up. And I think about the the motivation, the motives inside of her that compelled her to keep trying and not give up. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Now she's moved on to whistling. She can't whistle so well. Daddy, I can't do it. So I say, well, let me see how you're holding your mouth there and your tongue and everything. And Okay, we try it like this. Same thing. I, I can't do it. And I said, well, I can promise you one thing. <laughs> if you don't give up and you keep trying, you will get it. And, and I, I have no doubts that she will. What type of motivation is compelling her? You, well, you already know, don't you? Personal desire. Genuine desire. What are the tells for fake motivation? When I say tells, you know, like in gambling, when you're playing poker, a tell is something that gives you away. It reveals what your true strategy or your motives are. So what are the tells for fake motivation in recovery? How does a person naturally behave who's doing something primarily to convince others that he or she is doing it. Is a person, let me ask you this, is a person who's dieting because she genuinely wants to be slimmer, is she compelled to try to convince others of how slim she is at the beginning of her diet? Or does she wait to let her slimness, that is the obvious results, speak for itself? Remember, she's not doing it with the motivation that people think she's slim. Uh-uh. Her motivation is to actually be slim. So does a person who's driven by sincere personal desire to recover from emotional disorder strategically prepare ahead of time the right things to say with the purpose of appearing as if he or she has progressed? Does he or she feel any compulsion for this at all? Does a person who has actually made progress have to try to appear so? Nobody has to try to do what is simply a natural result of what they're genuinely experiencing. Remember, their motivation is not that people think they've progressed. No, their motivation is to actually progress. Where is the entire focus of the person who does this work for genuine reasons? Isn't it results? Yeah, it's results. Does it matter to him or her what others might think, not think, recognize, not recognize, accept, not accept, believe, or not believe? Not if plain old results are simply the true motivator. So no compulsion to convince anybody of anything exists in this scenario. It's just results. When results are what truly matter to you, you're not compelled to convince others of what you're doing or how far you've come because you're not being driven by these things in the first place. You see, your motivation and focus are actual results, which only you yourself have to recognize. For everybody else, you're happy to let the results speak for themselves. 
when your true motivation is in convincing others. You don't have the patience to let results speak for themselves. You see, because you're not after results, you're after convinced people. And this is where the law of minimal effort comes in. Have you ever heard of it? I've mentioned it before, way in the past. The law of minimal effort says that in any task, as human beings, we will not expend any unnecessary energy beyond what our true objective is. Let me say that again. The law of minimal effort says that in any task, as human beings, we will not expend any unnecessary energy beyond what our true objective is. For example, if your true objective, your true motivation, when going out to shovel snow, is just for you to be able to get from your, the front door of your house to the driver's side door of your car, you don't go on shoveling snow for just for the heck of it once this objective is met. As soon as your true objective has been met, you're back inside watching football. Let's go back to this uh, fella, Matt, who I gave a ride to the trailhead on the Appalachian Trail. If his primary motivation was for people to believe he threw hiked the Appalachian Trail, he would have only hiked enough of it to get some pictures in several different locations and then post them to Facebook for six months. He would not have actually hiked the entire trail. One only hikes the entire 2,500-mile Appalachian Trail when his true primary motivation is authentic personal accomplishment. So if your true primary motivation is to convince others, which thing is easier, actually going through with recovery? Doing all this hard, frustrating, uncomfortable work for real? Or is it easier just to dress up in the I'm all better suit and to try to fool yourself and others, which requires no uncomfortable effort at all and very little effort in general. The law of minimal effort therefore predicts accurately, I should say, that if your true motives for doing recovery work is to convince others of your progress, you will not actually do the work needed to progress because this would violate the law of minimal effort. Remember, for the person who's primarily concerned about what others think, his true objective is to convince people, not actually recover. Therefore, he'll only do as much as he has to do to convince others that he's progressed, which requires infinitely less effort than actually progressing. You don't go through all the uncomfortable, inconvenient effort required to actually progress if your true motivation is only that people be convinced that you've progressed. Not when you think you can simply learn to talk a certain way, use a certain tone of voice, follow a certain script, make certain admissions, and people will be convinced, you see? I call it putting on the look at me, I'm all better suit. It's so easy to put on, but you can't fake emotional health or sincere motivation. You cannot fake it. And it will not end well for anybody who continues to insist on wearing it. Either we surrender for real to the process and take this suit off, face our motivations with brutal honesty, and work to tap into genuine motivation, or the things we fear will become a reality.
Think about the sort of motivation required to give up smoking. What happens when somebody says they will quit to appease somebody else? Don't they just start smoking in secret? Sure they do. They might quit successfully for a while, but eventually, if they're doing it to appease somebody else, what this will mean is that they'll simply start smoking where that person can't see them smoking, or they'll start smoking in secret. When I look back and think about when the turning point happened for me, that is when I stopped going through the motions and I truly began to take recovery seriously, the phenomenon of hitting rock bottom was instrumental in my case. So what is hitting rock bottom? Some people believe it means losing everything you love forever. And you can see why recovery wouldn't be a very appealing notion if you're working on this assumption. In my particular circumstances, I had to lose everything I loved because I had the look at me, I'm all better suit on. The, the truth is, deep down, I liked my way of life. And I only wanted the disruptions to it to end. So my true motivation was to end the disturbance to my life, my way of thinking, not to actually get better. So hitting rock bottom was my final opportunity to tap into sincere motivation to change. I would have never chosen it voluntarily as long as I had the things in my life that made my way tolerable. As individuals, we all have different pain tolerances. Some of us are willing or capable of suffering much greater losses than others before hitting rock bottom can occur. And denial also plays heavily into this. You know, the denial that the consequences you're currently facing are really that big of a deal? Well, let me tell you, they're not only a big deal, they're a bigger deal than you're currently able to fully appreciate or fully willing to accept. If you do lose everything that you currently value, life will go on, and you can rebuild and find great satisfaction again. I'm living proof of that. But you'll do so forever regretting your failure to have decisively acted while you still had an opportunity to prevent the irreversible changes to your life. You'll spend the rest of your life regretting what you could have done for those you once shared life with but did not do. And you will forever wonder what could have been. It doesn't have to come to this. When my wife asked me to move out, I actually felt some excitement like, oh boy, <laughs> I can get my own apartment, enjoy some single life. I did not truly appreciate the gravity of the situation and how close to the edge of irreversible consequences I was. I was in denial that my relationship with her was truly in any danger of coming to an irreversible end for forever. I arrogantly and ignorantly believed deep down that I still had com complete control over the situation, that at any time I could get my old life back if I really wanted to. When I think back to these things, I recognize my foolish stupidity. It was within my power then and there to choose to motivate myself genuinely. This relatively simple choice, this letting go and surrender, would have prevented all of the permanent losses and permanent, irreversibly ruined friendships that have changed my life ever since. Tragically, only after the consequences were permanent and irreversible did the magnitude, seriousness, and permanency of these consequences become real to me.
trying to save you from that. It's unnecessary. I sacrificed all those beautiful things in my life in favor of what? What did I get in return? What I got in return was that I didn't have to genuinely motivate myself to truly care. To to want for myself to be better emotionally. Which would have improved my life, allowed me to enjoy true inner contentment for the first time in my life, and which would not have only prevented me from losing all those beautiful things in my life, but would have in fact enhanced them in ways that are hard to measure and that I'll never have the opportunity to see play out now. So hitting rock bottom is simply anything that allows us to tap into the sort of genuine motivation that authentic recovery requires. And in my case, losing everything was necessary because until I did, the only motivation I had at all for trying, again, trying in air quotes, was external motivation. Once the external motivations were no longer available to me, I had nothing left to lose and I had nothing external left to gain. So now, in this state, if I were going to do this thing, it could only be because I was choosing it for myself. You remember the guy in the look at me, I'm all better suit I mentioned earlier? He can voluntarily give up this suit. He can work to tap into sincere motivation and thereby possibly entirely prevent the future pain and losses that are surely coming and that he cannot even conceive of at this moment. But he probably won't do this. And this is tragic. Why does he not surrender to the process and save himself from these unnecessary, irreversible costs? I'll tell you why. Because he's lived his entire life trusting only his own judgment. You see, he's been emotionally isolated within himself since childhood, figuring out for himself the safest way to get about in life. So do you realize what I just described? A child of about three or four years old has emotionally walled himself in to avoid being emotionally hurt by those around him. Now, instead of having access to learn from other older, healthier, more experienced, and wiser people, he's going to figure it all out for himself with only four years of experience on this earth and with only a smidgen of mental and emotional development. And this is the established template for what this four-year-old child will still be trusting to get about in life 30, 50, 70 years later. You see, his judgments are built on what he's fine-tuned from direct experience, with the primary interest of staying emotionally safe in a world that he's quickly learned is constantly out to hurt him. Because his judgments have so effectively cushioned him from emotional dangers for so many years, he trusts his judgment completely and only his judgment. You see, his judgment got him through an emotionally dangerous life safely. And by golly, he's not going to gamble the farm by questioning those judgments now. What the little boy inside of this person does not realize is that his environment has changed. His own nature has changed. You see, he's no longer a child. The original dangers don't represent the same threat. He's no longer as vulnerable as he was back then. Literally everything from when he originally adopted those safeguards 
is now different. And I compare it to like an astronaut. An astronaut who returns from space. So he's been up on the moon for a while and he comes back from space and now he's terrified to take off his spacesuit, even though he's now vacationing on a beach in Florida. You see how his spacesuit's no longer appropriate or necessary. The same conditions and dangers don't exist. The original conditions for the fear that he has and the subsequent safeguards no longer exist. So the spacesuit's now not only not protecting him from anything, but what's worse is that given this new environment and these new circumstances, the spacesuit is actually interfering and complicating and impeding his life. It's no longer a protection. It's an interference. Remember, when I had nothing left to lose and nothing external left to gain, only then did my real progress begin. Why? Did I have to lose everything? Was, was losing everything the magic ingredient? No. No, the magic ingredient was not losing stuff or suffering pain. The magic ingredient was the frame of mind that losing stuff and suffering pain allowed me to finally experience. If you can put yourself in this frame of mind, there's no reason for you to keep losing anything at all. But you have to be brutally honest with yourself about whether your motivations are genuine. And if they're not, make them so. You may fool yourself, but you are the only person who will be fooled. Nobody else will ever be fooled for any length of time that matters. Nobody who does not repair the underlying issues at the root of emotional unhealth can instead fake good emotional health for long enough periods of time to matter. So let me repeat that. True emotional health cannot be faked. Just like you can't fake being fluent in another language, no matter how hard you pretend. One, you can't actually speak. Two, you can't actually understand. Three, you'll never get to experience any of the real benefits that those who do speak it get to enjoy. And four, nobody who does speak the language is fooled by you. So you've very successfully fooled people for all your life with fake versions of yourself. You've made them believe that you are who you are not. And so you probably think, whether you're aware of it or not, you think you can pull this off just as convincingly and as masterfully with your recovery, but you cannot accept this truth, use it as a reason to work to generate sincere motivation, or suffer the consequences True emotional health and authentic recovery cannot be faked. And if you're trying to fake it anyway, whether consciously, subconsciously, or unconsciously, you're engaged in a pointless use of your time and energy. There is no rational sense to it at all. Why can we say there's no rational sense to it at all? Because you'll gain absolutely nothing from doing this at all. You'll only suffer losses. No intelligent person in the world, understanding the reality of this, would ever make such a pointless investment of time and effort. So for those who are too weak, too stupid, and too unwilling to surrender and let go of their imaginary grasp of control, there's only one other final opportunity for reaching a place of sincere motivation, and that is hitting rock bottom. 
Here are some examples of things that might help people hit rock bottom. The realization of what they're doing to their children. The threat of divorce. Actual divorce. Not being shielded from natural consequences. Concern for their relationship with God or long-term salvation. A health scare. Poverty. Becoming a parent, a grandparent, or a great-grandparent. A dramatic life event. Permanently destroyed relationships with our children. Financial ruin. Irreversible health consequences. Imprisonment, legal consequences. Irreversible losses. The accumulation of all of these things, many of these things, or just some of these things. Here are some examples of things that might prevent a person. Prevent a person from experiencing hitting rock bottom. Job security. Wealth, a secure relationship, a comfortable lifestyle, denial, plenty of attention from the opposite sex, plenty of improper quote-unquote support from friends, good looks, being attractive, codependent relationships, not being held to consequences, not having boundaries enforced upon them. Those around them tolerate what they shouldn't. Good physical health. An attractive figure. You see, the more comfortable life is, the harder it is to tap into the sincere motivation required for recovery. And the further off, hidden rock bottom, will be. Why do you think that's true? Remember, when I had nothing left to lose and nothing external left to gain... Only then did I find the sincere motivation to do the work for real. Why? Because of the mindset it allowed me to get into. I no longer had anybody or anything to do it for except for myself. So now the only reason to do it at all is that it was something I myself wanted for myself. This is where those who genuinely care for us can play a part. They have to be willing to get out of the way. You see, allow us to suffer the full brunt of the natural consequences of our unhealthy thinking, as well as enforce concrete boundaries for themselves. And this may necessarily include separation, divorce, or the complete end of some relationships. It's just the way it is. Think of it like an electric fence. If I turn the electricity off every time my sheep get near the electric fence, how are they ever going to learn that they can't rub up against it? You see, I'm not, I'm not doing them any long-term favors by constantly interfering and shielding them from the opportunity to learn naturally the boundaries they just have to live in. And you may think the electric fence is cruel, but remember, the fence that keeps the sheep in also keeps the coyotes out. So, allowing the sheep to experience the consequence of touching the fence is the caring thing to do. So, if you're somebody who cares about somebody with borderline personality disorder or some emotional disorder, might be something to keep in mind. Are you doing them any favors by getting between them and the natural consequences of their unhealthy thinking? Well, you're not, but that's something for you to think about and come to the your own conclusions on. And uh, that's all I've got for today. We're going to stop here. And that is our conversation today about motives. That's something that uh, 
I want you to spend a lot of time thinking about because it could be the one major thing keeping you from experiencing good emotional health and inner contentment. And that brings us to a portion of the show that I like to call the encouraging finale. I'm almost certain that my daughter's going to be a doctor when she grows up. If not a doctor, maybe a nurse or a veterinarian. She loves toys that are medical in nature. And she loves watching videos on YouTube about, believe it or not, brain surgeries. Uh, She likes seeing documentaries about the human lungs, the human skeleton and all these things. So, I bought her a stethoscope, a doctor's stethoscope, and uh, she's just been loving that. As you also know, I have a new puppy, and his name is Arliss. And the other day, I was in the other room when I heard Eloise, my four-year-old daughter, in the other room playing with her stethoscope, say to Arliss, Arliss, stay still. This is a fart checkup. Fart checkup. <laughs>